Hi, and welcome back to the Insecurity Show. This is episode 24, where we discuss the information security roles. We have a website. You can go to it and you can check out the show notes, other episodes, and leave comments. And that website is in-security.org. And you can also follow us along on Twitter. Please do. It's the at Insecurity Show Twitter account. And then don't forget to send us an email at feedback at in-security.org. My name is Matt. And my name is Max. Hey, buddy. How you doing this week? Hey, I'm doing great. How are you doing? What is new and or exciting? You didn't answer my question. How am I How doing? I don't know. are you? I'm actually pretty good. I'm excited. Things are in the works. There's, uh, you know, things, things, things going on. Things? In, yeah, in things what domain? Oh, in, oh, just all across the board. Everything's coming up, Matthew. <laughs> When everything comes up, Matthew, that means that you didn't send an embarrassing text to anybody based on our previous conversations. Oh, no, 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 no. Sometimes everything comes up, Matthew. Anyway. Um, Oh, okay. In this one, the the Montreal Canadiens, which is the uh, professional sports team that I support, have made it into the second round of the 1993. No, what year is this? 2014 (laughs) Stanley Cup playoffs. Yes. By the time that this actually gets released, though, there will be uh, Stanley Cup winners probably already in it. Whatever, man. I don't want to talk about time anymore. I've given up on it. Right. So as of as of the time of this recording, the Montreal Canadiens, which is the professional sports team that I enjoy, has made it to the second round of the professional sports team sports game that I enjoy's um, final battle. So we're we're into round two. We've got uh, the first team that has managed to actually make it to round two. So that means that they get a little bit of a break, which means that they get to, uh, I don't know, relax or whatever it is that hockey players do. Probably train even more. You go, sports team. Right? Sports hard. Sports hard. There's a comic about that. I may or may not have sent it to you. Uh, At any rate, that's a thing. Other things. Among other things. Uh buddy of mine let me know that there is a job opening in a field that is a little bit more my field and uh, as a direct result of that I've applied for it and hopefully things will maybe or maybe not happen with it but at the very least I don't need the job so it's much more fun to apply for it fantastic I wish you the best when the job interview happens if necessary you can be sassy right like for instance if they say so uh, why do you think what what do you think makes it so that you deserve to work for us? And then at that point, you can just go off on them. To be like, what do you think makes you deserve me? Right, right. But also, I don't you know, know if I've... Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, you know, at the end of the interview, what you have to say. Which is? Do me a favor. Oh, there you go. That's a good one. Have a great day. I don't know how you... How, how often you've done any kind of interviews... But job hunting, <laughs> job hunting is wildly entertaining. Is it? Is yeah. it really? Oh, yeah. Because you get all of these ridiculous questions. So I don't know. Um, I've worked in a variety of different places with a variety of different levels of sandwich artistry. Yeah, no, I've done a variety of different jobs and a variety of different levels of professionalism. Um, I've worked for companies that actually have HR departments. I've worked for companies that literally don't and then they need to hire peons and so they get somebody who is currently the manager of that department by virtue of the fact that they haven't been fired yet and they have the most seniority to end up doing the interviews so when we worked at um computer store you worked at computer store with me right i'm not yes, making I did. that up yeah so when we worked at computer store at one point i was the one who was supposed to be doing all the interviewing just to hire um a stock clerk Mm. And obviously at that point I was, you know, 18 or whatever. So obviously I knew exactly um, what I was doing and everything about everything because that's what people knew at that age. Right. Um, I actually did a bunch of reading up on it. There's a lot of really interesting stuff involved in this whole interview process. This goes back to uh, 
you know, social engineering and whatnot, all of these things apply um, that the neurolinguistic programming, all these little tricks about learning how to win friends and influence people. But you wouldn't you wouldn't touch an interviewee. No, you don't need right? to. There's and, there's a lot of different things. Program them in such a way that they would become a better stock clerk. You would simply ask them the questions, the theoretical questions of, say, how have you resolved conflict in a situation where stocks are collapsing wrong kind of stock, but still <laughs> in a bear market. <laughs> if you see that there's a stock on the rise and it's clearly a sell at that point, do you think? Yeah. 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 So um, no, cause they had uh, one of my favorite interview questions is one of these things that if you've ever done any kind of, prep work for interviews everyone says well you know if they ask you that question where it is what is your greatest weakness you're supposed to try and turn it around and you give a strength as an answer because you're never going to admit to what your greatest weakness is that's just dumb what's your greatest weakness well sometimes i like to slack off and hide in the washroom so that i don't actually have to do work like you're not going <laughs> well, to say not a weakness that's a strength no well so what you're supposed right? the, to do the strength is your creativity in finding places in which you can slack off yeah um i'm glad you said slack off but yes <laughs> so one of my favorite interview questions is the, what is your greatest weakness? And so at this point I'm ready because my new answer is going to be, I think I can no longer feel love. <laughs> That's hilarious. But then you're supposed to, you know, cause it's supposed to be, you're taking a strength. You're pretending it's a weakness. So at this point, I'm just going to go out with a complete weakness, which is, I think I can no longer feel love and then just make it into an evident strength. Just because it would be mildly so, entertaining, and then they'd think that I was coached on interviewing. Right. But so if ever I get the ask, they'd be that, like, "What? Do you, what do you mean you can't feel love?" Yeah, I'd be like, "Well, don't worry. I mean, it's it's not like you know if I have family problems or anything that it's going to affect my job performance because pff, I just don't really care about them that much." Uh, <laughs> that, that does not sound like a good uh, a good fit for an organization. No, I think it's fantastic. What essentially you're saying is, I think I might be a sociopath. Oh no. Yeah, no, that's that's what a sociopath is. They can't feel love. Well, there's another one that's um, rather popular on the Internet. What is your what is your greatest weakness? And uh, the interviewee answers, oh, honesty, to which the interviewer says, well, I don't really think that honesty is a weakness. And then the interviewer says, I don't really care what you think. <laughs> that's good. Yeah. So everything's coming up, Matthew. I got new and exciting things in the works. Um, at the very That's least fantastic. For, I wish nothing but the best for you for practice and entertainment and whatnot. And potentially for profit. Yeah, actually, potentially for quite a fair amount of profit. One of the first programming languages that I really, you know, read about or started to try and learn as an adult was probably Perl. And uh, I, I'm glad you qualified this as an adult. Yeah, yeah, well, because, you know, when I was a kid, I had the Apple IIe. But I, I think that is actually really pertinent. Like, my first programming language was BASIC, BASIC, uh, GW BASIC, something like that. Like, a long, long time ago, my dad bought a computer and he bought a manual. And when I'd go and visit him, I would read the manual and type along the code examples. And I was like six or seven years old, right? Like, to me, this was really cool that I could make things work. Obviously, it wasn't a real programming language, it, but it started the concept, the fundamentals, the building blocks in my mind of how a computer actually works, how it understands the pieces of program that make up a program or flows of logic, ifs, ands, ors, right? It's just playing around with it, but, you know, it, it laid down the foundation for me, and I think kids are going to have a lot easier time with is my kids are going to have a lot easier time with this because you know they're growing up with computers and i was kind of fortunate that my dad somehow decided to buy a computer but go on what were you saying about I don't, your early computing experience i don't even know about that man my early computing experience first one was when i was you know super young my dad was 
apparently a crazy technophile because he had uh, one of the first modems I've ever seen, which was essentially the butt set where you had to cradle it in. And the only other person that we knew was. Yeah. yeah whoa, 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 whoa. Just just for clarity, that's butt set. And it is called a butt set because you butt up your telephone handset onto it so that its speaker and microphone can communicate with the opposite, you know, speaker and microphone within a telephone. Was I not clear when I pronounced it? I think there was room for error. Okay, fair enough. So essentially he had uh, a buddy. And so this guy had connections. So this guy had gotten a modem. And I remember sitting there. And this was way, 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 way back. He had the the butt set and he had uh, he would put the rotary phone handset onto the butt set and they communicated back and forth like for a couple of hours. And really, they had a conversation, which was hello. And you could see it type out on the screen and it was so slow. It was ridiculous. So like the entire course of the conversation took a couple of hours and it was something like, hello. Hey, this is pretty cool. Yes. All right. And right. that was it. But they, they- yeah. And they did. And the bytes would take, you know, days and days to get across. This was one of my first computer experiences, which was the Apple IIe. Then after that, we had the first programming experience was Apple Basic. Um, I don't know if it was called Apple Basic. I believe it was called Apple Basic. We had a couple of these books. Again, my dad, who knew the guy with the connections, had connections to get Apple software. So we had like almost infinite games and or programs. And then we had these programming books. So we would go through the programming books. We didn't really think about them too much at the start because all it was was if you type in exactly this then you'll end up with this game. So we would do that essentially early copy and paste. (laughs) Right. The manual one. But actually the act of typing it out, you know, gives your brain a chance to say, okay, well, what's this doing? Right. And then you put it all together and you go, oh, that's what happened. So there was a really early game that came out with uh, Basica. I'm not sure if it was the same thing on Mac Basic or Apple Basic or whatever it was called. But um it was a gorillas game where you throw bananas up at each other. And so you determine the angle at which you wanted to throw it and the velocity at which you wanted to throw the banana. And then if you hit the enemy, you won. Right. They they got eliminated. And so there is a gravity parameter. And then you, you start going through it and you go, oh, so this is, you know, the gravity parameter. Well, what if I want to make a low gravity mod? I'll just reduce that gravity from what normally is on earth as 9.8 meters per second to four meters per second. Right. And then you see the physics change within the game. Right. I remember, I remember gorilla from basic. Um, I also remember that by the time I got into high school, somebody had taken gorilla and made it amazing with the game scorched earth. Oh yeah. And then I believe scorched earth then evolved into worms. I could be wrong on that. I think Worms took the concept. I don't think it was the same company, but I might be mistaken. No, I don't myself. think it, I, I doubt that Gorilla was the same company as Scorched Earth as the same company as Worms, but they it just kept evolving. At any rate, going back again to this book, these books, they had these really simple instructions. Then they had like a breakdown where you could actually read your way through it. Then you could actually go from um, simply copying these things straight to actually reading through it, which, you know, as kids, we mostly didn't do because most of it was just like, well, you know, sometime we might be allowed to play on the computer and do this. But then I remember as reading it, eventually we would get to, uh, you know, go to and run. And uh, if this go to this, if that go to that. And then at that mm-hmm. point we could make our own like little choose your own adventure games with very basic information. Then totally did that. When I moved on to like my first programming book, realistically, not scripting, which was some HTML. I did some DHTML a little bit, but then my first programming was more or less Perl. And I really was terrible at going through the book. So the first thing that they had in this book was, you know, after the hello world example, they had some really basic way to do something. And as I was going through, you know, page seven of the book at that point, I had seen how to do something 
And as the director's health, I was like, well, you know, if I take this, I could make it so that it does this instead. And then maybe I can. And I just ended up building a, an image server and then it ended up being part of my website for ages. Hmm. Just because when I got something, some piece of information, I latched onto that. And then I was like, OK, so they're doing whatever I'm supposed to be doing, but I want it to do this. For sure. And that's the best part, right? That is where you go from just being a keyboardist to an actual thinking person that's coming up with their own you know, motivations and ideas of what you want to accomplish. That's where that's where the creativity comes from. You know, a lot of people think of computing and computers as just a very technical thing that doesn't have the creativity. The reality is that when you start getting into, you know, problem solving that is necessary within programming, but also necessary within a whole bunch of other fields of computing, that's when the creativity steps in. Right. And if you're lazy like me, then you use that programming experience to automate tasks so that you don't have to do the same thing all over again. If you're lazy like me, you don't learn how to do it properly. So as a direct result, you've got really limited tools and you just end up making fantastic workarounds for everything, which then you later on learn how to do properly and then they become a lot more efficient. Yeah, that that's just part of the learning process. I mean, the people who make the programming languages are also discovering these things as they go along right well the people who make the programming languages don't necessarily even come to a quarter of what the end users end up developing with it and then no i think that's the beauty the beauty is i know it's great i'll give you this creativity tool and you just go and invent worlds literally create figurative worlds (laughs) Uh, one of the things that i've noticed because php is one of the languages that i used the most One of the things that I noticed is people would always do want to do something with it. They would give you a a command or a function built in. Then like a huge subset of people would want to do something specific with it that clearly the devs hadn't thought of at the time. So then everyone would have their own version of how to do it. Then they realized, oh, you know what? This is actually a really cool function. Why didn't we think of that in this first place? So then they would just work it into the next revision. And that works, I'm assuming that happens with almost all of the programming languages as they become more mature. All the examples that you've given have been interpreted languages or scripting languages, right? Right. So PHP is an interpreted language, not really a scripting language because there's a an engine that happens on a server and it dynamically gives back content to people who are surfing a website, for instance, Right. But you can certainly have it on a server itself running jobs and tasks through these scripts. Um, you also mentioned BASIC and Perl. None of those are compiled programming languages. Have you ever spent any time with compiled programming languages? I'm not sure. I'll, I'll admit it. All right. So, yes, uh, I did a couple of small C++ programs. Okay. Is this a compiled language? Yeah, there was a compiler involved. Mm-hmm. Um, So the C++ programs that I ended up having to do were, in actuality, my girlfriend at the time's homework. Nice. Um, She couldn't be bothered to, well, she didn't really want to do it, and I was very interested in it. So, again, I took her textbook. I think I got to page, like, 18 or something. And then by then I'd figured out the little that I needed to know to be able to start making the things that I wanted to do happen. Right. Um, I built weird sort of functions and sub functions, calls and sub calls, whatever it is to end up doing the things. I, again, I don't remember exactly because it was probably 15 years ago now. Uh, so I ended up getting an A plus on her homework (laughs) and this was the first time that I'd ever touched C plus plus, but the similarity between it and Perl or, uh, PHP, we're still pretty much the, it's all very similar, right? It was just a question of getting the basic calls. Yeah, it is. It's, it's all based on logic. Cool. Anyway, all of that was a huge digression, but yes. Well, I, I think it's interesting because one of the things that we're going to talk about today is actually getting a job in the industry. So tying back to your first thing, right? Getting a job in the industry. We're talking about how to get people into the information security space and information security is huge and diverse, right? Just like 
people say, oh, I do computers for a living, right? Well, that can mean anything. There's so much different thing from the outside. It might not look like that. You just go, oh, computers. Okay. It's a little box under somebody's desk. You know, there's a screen involved, a keyboard, a mouse, maybe talking from one computer to another, right? Maybe that's what people think of when they think of computers, but there's so much more to it. There's specializations throughout wherever. So the topic for today is the different roles of information security out there. All right. Well, what's the, what would you say is the first role? So there's a few. It depends on what you want to do, like where your passion is. I would only suggest getting involved into computer security around what areas interest you. If you are um, someone who likes breaking things and showing how they're broken, right, then a penetration testing type role is really where you should get your foot in the door. You should be at home, build yourself a couple computers, get them to talk together, run known vulnerable software, use the techniques that we've discussed in the past about common web app vulnerabilities, practice your skills and develop that so that you can become a pen tester and and get into that side of the industry. That is one of the foot in the door type sides to computer security. Another foot in the door type side is the defensive side, right? You know, people are attacking you. Oh, and penetration testing. Let me just spend a little bit more time on this. Penetration testing is the act of doing this responsibly, right? You don't go out and learn to hack a system on somebody else's computer. It's unethical. It's illegal. You don't do that. You go and you find a a system. You create a virtual machine in which you can test out what you know. There's lots of resources out there of known vulnerable systems to actually practice these skills, right? I'll go out, find a bunch, chuck them in the show notes, but do not go out against somebody else's system that you don't have permission to attack and attack that. Even if you do have permission to do it, get it in writing. You need a get out of jail free card for this. All of these penetration testing companies do have these get out of jail type contracts where, you know, if you're caught, then at least you can present that and say, look, I was given permission to do this and hopefully you won't get sued. Right. But from a defensive side, you would have the security operations center, the SOC. Right. These are the people that are monitoring for security events that are happening that mean your systems are under attack. They're responding to this. They're looking for virus occurrences that are happening. They're managing the care and feeding, perhaps, of the antivirus systems themselves and deploying the newest patterns for what viruses are um, to match. Sorry, what do you mean by care and feeding? Uh, so, So they are doing the basic maintenance around the tools that have already been deployed So the antivirus system, an antivirus system is dependent on updates to it, right? So they'd be the people who go out and test the update, make sure that it doesn't break all of the machines in the enterprise that we've discussed in the past that is known to happen sometimes with antivirus signatures where they're mistakenly put like a new revision of the operating system as a virus, right? And then it doesn't boot anymore. So the care and feeding is these people who select this newest version of the antivirus software, put it out there, the newest version of uh, intrusion detection pattern matching that shows up on their monitors as this is an incident, right? They'll make sure that that's updated, that it's not causing false positives. They'll tune the IDS, uh, the intrusion detection system, maybe even a bit to make sure that, you know, there's not a flood of events for the people who have to monitor it and the actual attacks get lost in the noise. You don't want that to happen. Is care and feeding like an in a industry slang type thing or um, it could be, it could be, but it's, um, you know, it's just like you would think of with a garden or a pet, right. But using the gardening sense, right. You build something up, you let it flourish and sometimes it grows too big and you have to prune it back. Right. Or sometimes it's it's missing a nutrient and you add that nutrient to it. Okay. So in the same sense, your overall security perimeter monitoring that you have in place, uh, you have these people pruning by saying what is important to look for, what is not important to look for. The updates to that that are necessary to keep it up to date and, and current 
and, and looking whether those updates will adversely affect your existing systems and uh, everything that you have in place. Absolutely. Because a lot of the times when antivirus software is running, then the way that it functions or the way that it identifies intrusions or weaknesses, if you have a specific piece of software that needs to work off of, you know, the uh, the port of the day, the, the newest, most popular attack works off of a specific port or something, as an example, then if your software relies on that, this antivirus software might then recognize that as a as an intrusion, as opposed to letting this software work, it'll shut it down or something. Um, antivirus doesn't really look at incoming traffic. All right. So then a similar example. So, yeah. So there's a bunch of different products out there that protect an enterprise. You have antivirus. Let's say firewall server then. You have a separate product called intrusion detection. You have firewalls that actually block traffic. You know, you don't have a one box does everything type solution. There is no silver bullet. And you don't want to trust too many roles onto one appliance because it becomes, you know, jack of all trades, master of none. You want to put in the most effective products that you can afford to do and have multiple of those products that are best of breed or really good of breed if you're, you know, on a budget level. But definitely, you know, where something's not cutting the mustard, you cut it out. Perfect. All right. So that security operations is another entry level place. Uh, Both the pen testing roles and the security operations roles are tend to be roles that'll pay something like 80K a year for these people. Um, So there's a monetary appeal to this, and it is entry level. So you don't need a whole slew of experience in this area firsthand. You just need to basically understand the things that we've already taught throughout this course. Right. That'll get you a foot in the door and maybe 80K is a little bit much, but at least 60K. Right. It's a information security, as I stated before, is a huge industry. People really want bodies in this industry. And not all of the positions are being filled. So there's like a less than 1% unemployment rate in the field. Big industry, high demand, low supply for employees. Right. And drawing back to my uh, grade nine economics, that leads to, you know, higher wage. The hardest part of this is proving that you know what you know, right? If you go to school for information security, the computing security, there are new programs out there to do. No problem, right? You can knock this out of the park, but not everybody's as lucky. You know, there's older people like us who have come and gone through school uh, and those programs weren't around. And rather than going back into school, you know, how do you prove that you know these things? Well, you can develop relationships through networking and show the people, demonstrate the people that you're meeting in these network groups that, you know, you do know enough in this space to to merit getting a job uh, or you can go out and seek certification. And there's a whole bunch of certificates out there. The one for the penetration testing scheme might be the ethical hacking certification or there's another group of people that are actually trying to build up a certified pen tester. Right. You can seek training from security organizations like SANS which you can do like over a week or a weekend and then get a certification out of that that says you've done this, you've learned what has been taught and you're at such a level where you're pretty much employable, right? And the sad part is that unless you know somebody and and can prove that you know through communication, you really need a piece of paper behind you to get into the job. You know, there's a Maybe for a security analyst to get that foot in the door, maybe you want to seek out like a security plus certification or something in just generalized training that a lot of companies will sponsor people to go and do on computer security. Right. And and it's just something you can tack onto the resume that says, not only am I interested in this, I'm invested in this. And then as you build experience, one of the ones that's really sought after by HR, the people who don't actually know what they're hiring for a lot of the times, is the Certified Information System Security Professional, or CISSP for short. 
And that is kind of the MCSE of standards for security. Uh, MCSE is the Microsoft Certified Solutions Expert. And it's just, it's a certification. It's a piece of paper. It might mean nothing to people in the industry, but it's that foot in the door that says, I've spent the time. I know the material. You know, I'm, I meet at least this criteria to start working for you. It's a, you must be this high to join the ride. And what a ride it is. This is a great, fun, exciting, dynamic industry. And that's why I think that so many people should be interested in joining this. And and it's definitely, the need is there. The people need to fill this role, right? And if you're a programmer already, then the transition's really easy. Like, you just start working towards something like a application security specialist right where you specialize in that field to to make sure that people program applications securely you look at the buffer overflow conversations that we've had already you look at the uh, web app vulnerability stuff that we've talked about you know you start working at spreading this knowledge across the other specialists in this and you already know the language that they communicate in because it's programming and programming is programming as we discussed earlier in this show. And then there's the Jack of all trades, master of none roles that, that I'm in now, which is along the lines of the internal consultant where you get involved. Uh, sometimes it's called security consulting. Sometimes it's called like a, a, an advisory role or an assessment role, right? And these are the roles where you're doing uh, threat risk assessments on products that are being delivered through the company. And you look and you say, okay, I can think like an attacker and I can see that if they pointed their focused laser beam of energy at this point, you know, we would be jeopardizing customer information. We would be granting them access to these other systems within the environment. Right. So there's that's another type of security role very necessary within the risk fabric that people are looking at of ensuring that they're not delivering these weak products. I'd said it many times before, but if you start getting people to develop security conscious products up front, then you save a ton of money down the road of them having to change it later. If you can point out the risks before something goes live, right? You might not always make friends doing that, but at least if they can get their mind starting working in this place, they'll make sure that that's the first thing they fix the next revision or they will say, this is a really big problem. We need to delay launch so that we can fix this problem right now if it's that big of a problem. And this is where that risk discussion fits into this as well, where we had, you know, sometimes it makes sense that if something's really not likely to blow up in your face, then maybe you just launch with it and fix it in the next revision. We've also brought this up, but not from a product perspective, but just from bring the security mindedness to everything that you end up doing. If you get an email that you think is suspicious, be more suspicious than you are accepting. You're right. That is the point of this show, right? Get people in that mindset, no matter what you're doing, if you if you even are a help desk person, you know, at least start thinking that there's bad guys out to get you. Develop your security spidey sense. Copyright Marvel. <laughs> Once you start sensing something is, you know, off or even before you start sensing something is off. When you're starting to work in things that are a lot more. I don't know, secure or private or uh, important or valuable, then at that point, just start being that extra bit cautious or even paranoid. Yeah, there's an interesting phenomena that people do. In my experience, when dealing with the business of the financial institutions versus the technology of the financial institutions, the business employees think that whatever they're doing is the most important thing. Like their data is the most important data that needs to be protected because it's the things that they live with every day. They see that they live and die by their information. 
right? And so they want it protected. Whereas the technology folks are like, yeah, this data is here and I'll do what I need to do as a base minimum, but I've got all of these other things that I need to do as well, right? And it becomes a commodity to them. So um, I worked in this place that dealt with a lot of cash processing, of counting like thousands, millions of dollars a day, right? And they became desensitized to the fact that they're holding something worth so much money. These employees were paid a little amount of money, but yet they're processing millions of dollars of money through these cash counting machines and coin counting machines, right? And it's amazing how they get just blinded to the data uh, of which they're dealing with, but yet they recognize that at a macro level, companies are depending on them and they're living and dying based on them counting these numbers accurately, right? It just becomes numbers to them. But in reality, like it means that, uh, I don't know, Tim Hortons can actually pay their tax bill. Right. Now, this is not just a specific branch versus IT type of mindset. This is you know, employee versus employer. You've got a boss who's on on top of everything. You've got one employee who thinks that whatever their issue is, is the most important. This even goes as far down as, you know, just regular people. You see some guy who's got, you know, his mortgage to pay and he's like, oh, oh I'm so concerned about that. And you just think to yourself, well, come on, dude, just relax a little bit. Like it's not Nothing's that bad. And then you go to the supermarket and someone shorts you 25 cents in your change and you flip, right? When it comes to whatever it is that specific people are doing, they'll always consider it more important. They'll think, they'll feel, it's a feelings thing specifically on that, where they feel like what it is that they're doing is the most critical, most important. Whereas you really have to keep in mind a global picture for everything, That's very true. And what really helps you communicate that global picture out to everybody is metrics and metrics aren't fun and metrics aren't sexy, but metrics is the measurement of things. And you can compare a measurement that is unbiased, right? Not based on a feeling and say, okay, you're pulling in this much income with this application and you're pulling in this much income with this application. And if this problem is realized it'll cause you to lose so much money and you to lose so much money so really let's just fix it beforehand exactly right and that that is more along the lines of you know the role that i'm in now as a security advisor uh and consulting around things and this whole threat risk assessment component to it there are other roles uh another potentially entry-level role is the the role around security administration Right. Which is saying that so and so needs access to such and such. And the person who grants that access of who has access to what. Sometimes that is a a separate role that is needed because of separation of duties. You don't want a user of the application to also be an administrator of the application because then you have a, a problem of they could potentially, you know, create an account that creates a record and then also be able to approve the record all on their own and then perform fraud, for instance, or whatnot, right? You want to have uh, a separation of duties so that you can't have one rogue employee bring your company down. It's just a, a risk management technique. So you'll have a dedicated body of employees, perhaps, that do account management and say, okay, this person needs a user account. This user account needs access to, you know, the finance database for updates, needs access to the accounts payable systems to be able to issue checks out to the vendor that they deal with. But they don't need access to, you know, going back to the designer thing, the graphic designs that so-and-so is producing. If you have a smaller business, you're not necessarily going to be able to have these individual teams or individual people doing these single jobs. 
That doesn't mean that that all these security ideas should go by the wayside. You can simply have, you know, as an example, have two separate accounts. You have one person who has access to the create account. You have one person who has access to the modify account. It can be the same person who has access to both accounts, but one account can do one thing. One account can do the other thing. This then falls back to auditing and to metrics. You can then take a look at it. You can see, okay, look, you're the only person who has access to this create account. There's a couple of people who have access to modify it, but your account specifically did the modification. Right. So so logging is very important and the monitoring of those logs might fit under a role such as the ESOC person for monitoring it as it goes by live. There's another role, though, that we haven't yet discussed, which is the people who do the forensic investigation. Forensics being a term taken from like, you know, a murder of somebody. You get somebody who goes in a forensic scientist who looks at the stuff that you see in CSI, the trajectory of the bullet, blah, 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 blah. Right. Well, in a computer crime, it's much the same. Right. You have evidence of somebody compromising one system leading to compromising other systems or somebody who has been granted permission, you know, logging in and doing this nefarious thing. The reason why we log is so that somebody can investigate after the fact and see what went wrong. So there's there's a whole forensics component where someone can recover data that's been deleted from hard drives, right, where they have the tools that can piece these things back together in a scientific way that they can figure out where the crime or the problem happened through these computers and rebuild up the case and go and discipline somebody or, you know, recover data that was lost and deleted or whatever it might be. So there's that component to uh, information security as well as a specialization. Then another thing you had mentioned is the auditor. And the auditor sometimes is and sometimes isn't information security savvy, but definitely we rely on them within information security as the people who go out and check because a process is written down That might be a security process to make sure that you have separation of duties and whatnot, like we just talked about. It's only as good as the paper that it's written on. You need someone to go and prove that people are following this process. That is the job of the auditor. The job of the auditor is to read the documentation that exists and then validate that this is what is indeed being followed. And I've had jobs that I've taken up that were created because People weren't doing what was documented, right? Their whole computing mindset had completely evaporated the information security part of it. And they were in such a bad situation that Audit had found all these problems with their information security program. They needed someone to step in and take it over. And they created that role. And I went in and I did a great job at that. But like without Audit having been there, it would have not been as quickly reactive because you can't really say proactive because there was already a problem there. Right. But it wouldn't have been as quickly found out and acted upon. And there would have been big problematic incidents in the future, which might have even bankrupted the company. I think since most of your experience really stems from large scale. I think on a really big scale, you know, big corporation, um, lots of manpower, lots of employees, lots of people doing whatever they're going to end up doing, which almost inevitably you're going to have people who think that they're above the rules or that they don't apply to them. I think large scale auditing should be done almost constantly. I think smaller scale, you still need to know that first off logging is happening and second off Auditing needs to be a continual process. You can't come up with a process, then watch it for a little while and then let it fall by the wayside because over time it will erode. Yeah. So as long as it's continuously done, doesn't need to be on any set schedule, but in a small scale, it needs to be done repeatedly. You have to occasionally crack down on it. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. That is also my experience, right? So this company, they loved me when I was there. I was able to handle requests for proposals from customers, the potential customers. Uh, I was able to deal with security questionnaires that were there from uh, their existing customers that were auditing the, the health and care and feeding of the information security program within this organization. 
But when I left there, you know, things started to degrade and erode. And now that I look back on it, you know, it's really that they knew that audit would come back and see them. So they knew they needed to do basic things. But the management mindset and support didn't translate down throughout the ranks. And I'm not sure why, but people were given processes that they needed to continue with. And they just they played dumb. They didn't they didn't think that those processes applied to them or they were busy with other stuff. You know, they're putting out the fires that they could see and letting this huge kindling firestorm create behind them. In my experience, as you know, oftentimes being either entry level or a beginner or whatever it may be, more often than not, the base employees don't hold the same ideals or whatever, because trying to be really secure, and really careful is a lot of work. And as you get more and more comfortable with any job or any position or anything that you're doing repetitively, you then find ways to make it easier, ways to make it quicker. And you're going to end up using any of these shortcuts that you can, because I don't I don't know if it's human nature, but a lot of people will find an easier way to do a thing. And once one person finds an easier way to do a thing, they may potentially tell other people an easier way to do this thing. And if this thing is your regular job, you need to have if you need to have a specific structure and specific steps to do it, then skipping a step is always going to leave it open to failure. Yeah. And maybe what we were talking about beforehand, where everybody thinks that their information is the most important thing, helps lead down the slippery slope that is, you know, I'll take a shortcut here and deal with this later, which actually never gets dealt with. And without having a dedicated body to be, you know, it's not it's not a complicated issue, but a dedicated body to actually measure people and show them over time the metrics of you know, they're in action and and what it's causing, you know, people won't act right. The IT guy thinks he's got all these calls to deal with. You know, rarely does he go back and look at the root cause of what's causing all of these calls in the first place. That's keeping me so busy because they're too busy. Right. You need somebody else to take that macro view and say, OK, overall, it's not such a big deal. We should be investing energy or time instead of hiring five people and keeping them on a, an annual salary of $30,000 a year to handle answering phones and whatnot. Maybe we spend 70K and solve the problem to begin with, and we don't need so many bodies answering phones. But now, all of this really seems to rely on communication. Communication between the people who are doing the task over and over again, the people who are making up the rules, and then the people who are enforcing it. If you get a communication between them all saying, look, okay, so this specific task is something that people will call in about constantly. There's something going wrong here. If this happens every single day, then identify it as a problem. However, after a while, the people who are dealing with it constantly... It's like, you know, you're in a in a room with a bad smell. If you stay in the room with a bad smell for too long, your nose says, you know what? Maybe it's not that bad and shuts down. You can no longer smell it. Um, when you're constantly dealing with a problem, eventually you're just like, well, this is just par for the course. This is something that's going on. True. And then at that point, you just kind of block it out. You deal with it on every call or every every instance of it. But that still is not solving the problem. That's simply ignoring the problem. Like you're putting a Band-Aid on a gaping head wound. You don't do that. But right. people end up doing this anyway. That's very true. Very true. Uh, so another role, I suppose, is one that we've already discussed, which is the security awareness one, where you have people who are responsible for informing the employees, doing the, the tests that are required by perhaps regulatory bodies to make sure that your guys are keeping up to speed on the security processes and security criteria, right? You have maybe another group of people that are writing standards internally that you must abide by, or at least going out and doing research into, you know, where the industry is going and adopting those. So there's a ISO, which is the International Organization of Standardization, or in French, the International Organization of Standardization. They've developed research into these best practices, and you can buy the 27,001 ISO standard, which says 
this is what an information security management program should look like. And you can buy the ISO 2702 standard, which says, you know, this is what specifically you need in a security program. And you can go and buy these things, which fit most parties, but maybe not you specifically. And, you know, it's internationally recognized as a standard. It might not be best of breed. It might be good enough to get you started. But you might also need internal people who look at this, who are able to say, okay, these are the types of products we use. This is exactly what we need for our scenarios to meet the standards defined by these international standard bodies. And then you'll have the top dog role, the director of information security or the chief information security officer that looks at an enterprise level wide It's an enterprise wide level title that spreads their influence over all of these other groups and makes sure that they're performing exactly what needs to be done so that the shop can be lean and mean. And, you know, audit often times is outside of this umbrella because they need to even hold the information security group accountable for their standards. So they typically feed into like the finance type side. Um, or a governance type side, because that's their role is more of a governance type role. But for all the other information security type roles, they'll even either fit up into like an engineering type role if they're engineering in nature and an operations role if they're operational in nature. But the person who owns accountability at the end of the day is the chief security officer or the chief information security officer, either the CISO or the CISO. Right. And that that's the like the coveted role for people like me, because that's like, wow, you can just run everything and have it take along exactly how you want it to. Right. And then there's all the other roles that we've talked about in the past, like the project management, the development side that all fit into this together. So don't want to count them short. Definitely need those people to help us achieve the goals that we want to to protect the information drive the industry forward. And that's what we're trying to do at the end of the day is, you know, get people into this role to drive the industry forward, disseminate this information so everybody can can help move the ball along. We don't have to deal with this, you know, 50-year-old technology that's insecure. We have new things, better things, and we're going to go to that together. I think this is a really good list of if you're in the security industry or want to get into the security industry and you really broke it down in a great way so that we've got... uh various different steps and stages and, you know, targets and goals. Why, thank you, Matthew. And there's all sorts of nuances. Your company is going to be different, but generally these are the bodies of roles that we should find ourselves in. And, and yeah. But even just looking at these roles that you've listed based off of, you know, all of the really awkward interruptions that I brought in, you can sort of try and take away from it that even if you've got a small business, if you're trying to do this on your own, you can take a look at the various different positions that are available in small, medium, large businesses. And from that, try and piece together different ways to approach your own security. A great point. You know what? I think that there's a lot to take out of this episode. I think that this episode is still relatively light. I think that we've covered it in such a diverse and uh, interesting way. But I think we should take a little bit of a breather. Uh, I want you to have yourself a great week. Matt, do me a favor. Do me just right now. Do me a favor. What's that? What's that, buddy? Have yourself a great week. Oh, swoon. Swoon.